You're listening to Recovery Podcast, a production of Volunteers of America. My name's Nick, and I want to thank you for joining us this week for episode 30. At Volunteers of America, we are a ministry of service, seeing broken people physically, emotionally, and spiritually healed and thriving in their lives. Our team brings you recovery podcasts twice a month with stories, interviews, and insights for all those seeking to live their best life. It's our goal to inform, engage, and inspire all who listen. Subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you use to get it delivered twice each month. If you like what you hear, Please, please subscribe and leave us a review. It helps so much. And now for this week's episode. Well, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us today. I I appreciate you being here. Um, you're another team member here at Volunteers of America that first came to our organization as a client in need. Uh, so I appreciate your willingness and your courage to share some of your story with us today. Thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to share my story. Yeah, every story is valid. Every story is is unique, and I, I love hearing them. And uh, our listeners really appreciate uh, content like this as well, um, because it comes from the heart, comes from your experience. And uh, I want to start by just asking a little bit about your youth, your younger life, and and when when did you start to recognize as as a younger person that you had some of these addictive things, these traits going on inside? Um, I think more than that, I really, so I was raised in kind of a disjointed family. Mm. Um, my dad was my hero. You know, I looked up to him, who I wanted to become, and he basically was there to try to save my mom from her alcoholism. And so their marriage was based on that. Um, so it, it was kind of, you know, growing up, it was hard because there was a lot of trauma with my mom, um, and her addiction and my sisters and I really bonded over that trauma. And so our family dynamic was just a little bit different growing up. And so more so, you know, rather than did I realize that I had addictive traits, I realized that I had um, addiction in my family. Yeah, And so that's really where it became noticeable, you know, that my mom has a significant problem. And as a kid, of course, I didn't know what that really meant, but I did know that there was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in Mm. my mom. And so getting to know that growing up, really brought about my understanding of what alcohol does to someone. Yeah. About what age do you think you were when you really started to recognize that in your family? Um, probably six, seven. I mean, that's when I really was going through it with my mom. I would say until I was, I don't know, maybe 10, 11, 12, that I really started to realize what, you know, the alcohol's part was in my mom's behavior. Did you feel like you were 
alone in some of that understanding? Did were there others around you that you felt like you could have dialogue with, or what? What was that like? Yeah, I felt totally alone. I mean, like yeah. I said, I had my sisters, but my little sister, you know, we're five years apart, so she was really young at that point. My older sister has a different dad, so she was kind of in and out of our household, and so, you know, it was. It was. I just remember going to school and having friends at school that wanted to hang out, and you know they would come over, and it was just always so embarrassing because my mom behaved the way she did, and so you know I had to, I had to learn that the way my mom acted was not normal, and so that's when I really started to kind of remove myself from hanging out at my house, and we'd go to other friends' houses, and you know that's. That's really when it became noticeable, I would say. Yeah. So there was that growing kind of thought of shame a little bit, even yeah. at that young age, which is is hard, right? No, yep. no young person should experience shame in that setting in that way. So, yeah. Um, so as you you grew, then through that time, Jesse, what what did that look like for you? You and I had a little bit of a conversation earlier, and we talked about this this kind of sense of value in you and and there was maybe a little um you didn't necessarily feel valued as you grew up and then other things kind of came into play that that gave you that sense of value talk a little bit about that yeah so you know i just remember at a really young age having really bad self esteem always kind of being um unsure of of myself, you know, how I looked, my appearance, um, the friends that I had, you know, I was just really insecure as a young kid. And so that, that came with me as I grew up. And so along with that also came pretty heavy anxiety and, you know, all based around that insecurity. And so, you know, I really started, and I'll say this too, you know, growing up, I always said, my mom is someone who I never want to become you know, and unknowingly to me, I became just that. And I followed in her footsteps completely. Um, you know, it started off slow. I, I started experimenting with alcohol in junior high. And so that's really where I became accepted into this new group of friends who were the cool people. And, you know, it was exciting and we were partying. And as soon as I had that first drink, I realized that that took away my anxiety, that took away my insecurity, that gave me this sense of purpose. And, you know, I found my value through alcohol. Yeah. And then that grows, unfortunately, into so many other things. We, we talk all the time about the fact that you can never get back that real first sensation. We're always chasing that first sensation of, oh, here's something that, that brings this sense of freedom or sense of value or whatever it is to me. Um, and yet each time we use, it gets further and further away. So it's this, you know, uh, effect that really, that's where the bondage comes from, right? Is is trying to always kind of chase that. So yep. what, what did life look like then? Um, for you moving forward uh, out of that, um, when you first started maybe drinking and, and as you progressed, what did that look like for you? What path did you go down? So I was always a really good student. I loved school. Um, I did really well, 4.0. 
um, honor roll. I got a president scholarship to a community college that paid for the tuition. Um, So, you know, school is really important to me. But what slowly developed as being equally important was that sense of um, belonging, which I found through partying and hanging out with friends and drinking. And, you know, so started with the drinking, the drinking led to marijuana occasionally. Um, But really what set my path to what it was, was I started to use cocaine. Mm. And so um, if anybody knows what that's like, it's, you know, to someone who's insecure and um, maybe timid a little bit in social settings, cocaine really gave me the confidence that I just, I craved my whole life, you know, and so I found that to really be what started my true addiction, you know, and of course I didn't realize it then, it was just fun and partying and that's what we did on the weekends and from the weekends it slowly started to throughout the week and then in high school, you know, I'd bring it to school with me and, you know, it just became such a routine. Yeah. You know, and trying to find the money and support my my need for that feeling, you know, really, really started heavy in high school. Yeah. And that's, it's, that that breaks my heart. I've, I've heard that story many, many times. And it, it breaks my heart because there's this realization that we all were made, were created, right, to be in fellowship with each other. And and that ability to all of a sudden feel like, oh, there is something that's going to help me be a more engaging person. And it's all denial. It's all, right, this this false sense of, of all those things. But it, it is sometimes that uh, real gateway piece that, that makes us feel like, oh, now I have that sense of belonging. I have that sense of worth. Yep. And... Um, boy, it gets used against us in a real bad way. Yeah. And it happened quickly. You know, it, it really, I can't put blame on anyone else, but I definitely had a knack for surrounding myself with, um, not the best judge of people. And so, you know, I got myself into situations that was, you know, the party scenes and, you know, really reinforcing my behavior through, my drug use and drinking alcohol. And so, you know, after high school, I had one friend specifically who, you know, she, she really, me and her bonded really well. Um, She introduced me to pain pills. And so that set the ball rolling for a whole nother path that I, it happened so quickly, you know, Pain pills led to drinking more, led to no longer partying really, but really just using to get through the day. And, you know, and then I remember the day that it happened, you know, we were were sitting in the living room and I was asked, hey, do you want to try this? And, you know, it was meth. And I knew that any kind of drug would make me feel better, would make me feel happier, would make me feel, you know, not normal. And I craved that. And, you know, since that day, it took me down this horrible, destructive path of using meth. Yeah. And how old were you then? Oh, I was probably 19, 20. Well, not only is that 
costly to your body, to your spirit, but it's also, there's costs involved. What did that look like for you? How, what were you doing at that time to afford uh, a lifestyle where there was pain pills and alcohol and all those things that cost money, right? Was there, um, you'd gotten out of high school, you were headed to college. What did that look like? Yep. Yeah. So I had just started at the community college and I, at the time, I think I was waitressing, but like I said before, you know, I had a knack for finding people. And so the people I was hanging around with, it just, you know, the drugs were just there. And so, you know, it really didn't cost me a whole lot to start my addiction, but obviously very quickly that changed. And so having to support that, you know, I, with school, I, I finished the community college. I did really well, um, A's and B's in all my classes. And as I was transferring to the university, that's where my meth addiction really took control. And so, you know, I started skipping school. I started just being late to everything. I started bartending at that time. And so, you know, I'm I'm bartending, I'm getting free booze, I'm using meth to keep me going, to stay up all night studying, sleeping through school, you know, and eventually I got suspended from college. Really? Mm -hmm. That caught up to you? Yep. Was it because of the drugs and alcohol? Oh, yeah. Really? The lifestyle that came with it. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I couldn't keep up. And then I hit a point where, you know, I just didn't really care enough to keep up and I didn't really find the purpose of going to school something that I wanted to pursue. I, you know, what I wanted to do was get high. And that's what I did, you know, and I had one best friend throughout all this, you know, through childhood and um, then into these times. And she was my best friend throughout everything. She, I never used with her, but, you know, we always had plans that we were going to graduate college together and we were going to walk together. And I just remember the moment where she was planning her graduation and I was suspended. And so that I just hit, I hit bottom, you know, I was so heartbroken that I couldn't, I couldn't graduate with my best friends, something that, you know, we had planned forever together. And now, you know, my life, just went sideways. So she, she ended up moving. And so that loss really took its toll on me too. And so, you know, after that, I just kind of went off the deep end. Yeah. And what, what did that look like? What was going off the deep end after using math and, and, you know, other lifestyle things that you were doing, what, what was left? Well, there was a lot left. Yeah. I discovered, yep, nothing good. I, you know, so I was at this, I was at my bottom and I was starting to feel those feelings that initially caused me to use in the beginning. It was that disparity, that insecurity, that self-worth, you know, not being good enough. Um, and so that really, the meth didn't even really help with that. It almost made it worse, you know, and I had yeah. gotten to a point where you know, you talk about financials where now I had to to figure out how to pay for my addiction. And so to do that, I started dabbling into selling. And I realized very quickly that if I sold, 
I would make a large profit, I could feed my addiction, and on top of all that, which is the the biggest thing for me at this time, was I had a whole new group of friends, and I'll quote, friends, you know, who I surrounded myself with, who wanted me, who needed me, you know, of course they didn't need me, they needed the drugs that I had that I could sell them, and so that's where I, again, filled that void with that lifestyle. Yeah. Toxic playgrounds create toxic people for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Um, I I wonder, did you have to, so when you were done with, with school, did you do well enough in school to where you didn't have a lot of, uh, of school debt coming out of that? Or was there also that on top of things that you were looking at? Yeah, I definitely had a lot of debt. Um, not a lot, but I would say, you know, enough to, to worry an average person, but none of that mattered. You know, none of that mattered in my addiction. I'd rack up credit cards. It just didn't matter. Um, You know, I still worked though full time. I, you know, at the time would say that I was a functioning addict for sure, but you know, my jobs were bartending, so it was easy to get away with. And I'd make a lot of money bartending, selling drugs, doing both at the same time, you know, so it supported this insane religious addiction that yeah. I had created. Yeah. Money can, can help to disguise all that for a little while longer anyways. It's, yeah. it's, it can't ultimately do it, but you know, there are many people I've met who if they have enough money to sustain that they can, they can go for a while. And, uh, but yeah, it always catches up. And I went for a while and it yeah. did catch up. You know, I, I eventually, I was, I was, it's the same thing that happened in school. You know, I started oversleeping. I couldn't get to work on time. I was just missing important things in my life that, you know, the drugs just interfered with my life so much that I had to make a change to just strictly living in the drug world. And so I eventually, you know, I got fired from all my jobs. Um, I, just started meth, started selling meth. And that was my main income, you know, and through that, I lost several apartments, I went through vehicles, I, you know, went through all these things. And I had all this money and all these drugs. But, you know, I was living homeless in my car, you know, I was living homeless in a trailer that was, you know, didn't even have electricity, like, my lifestyle was just, it was insane. You know, I look back and I'm like, how was it that I was living in this trailer that didn't have running water, didn't have electricity. And I was content with the way I was living because I was high. Yeah. You know, that, that denial, that deceit again of all those things, right. We, we can live in just some horrific things when we think there's uh, another little gift coming our way. And yeah. uh, that's how we, our brain justifies all those things. Well, at some point then uh, you, you've shared this real picture of, of this, um, you know, real uh, spiral I- into your addiction and selling and this lifestyle. There had to be a, a transition point. What, what, what came about through all that? Yeah. So, you know, again, I was just hanging out with the wrong people and doing the wrong things. And, you know, I really had pulled myself away from my family, my dad and my sisters completely. And so, you know, I don't even recognize the person that I had become at that point. And I was sickly looking. I mean, 
I just didn't have a life. You know, my life was gone. And here I was, you know, thinking that I had everything. And I just, I'll never forget the day that, you know, I was driving and I, um, I got pulled over for a broken taillight. And in my car, I had, you know, all my drugs, paraphernalia, a lot of money. Um, And that was the day that saved my life. Mm. A broken taillight. Yep. I'm so grateful for that broken taillight. (laughs) I am. You know, uh, that is a great beginning to a miracle story, a broken taillight. It is. So what happened? So I was arrested. Um, I was charged with two felonies. And, um, you know, I just... I remember riding in the back of the cop car on the way to the jail and I was just thinking, boy, how did, how did someone that had so much, uh, charisma and desire for life end up here? You know, it just, it didn't seem real to me and it took me a long time to, you know, really acknowledge the fact that I was, this was real. This wasn't just something small, like this was a big deal. And I was in a lot of trouble. Um, you know, I got caught for, well, my charges are for distributing meth and, um, possession of course. And so with those charges, I sat in jail for a year, um, which I'm also very grateful for because sitting in jail, humbled me more than I can ever explain. Yeah. You know, being yeah. being somewhere where it's just cold metal and no pillows and the roughest blankets and cold toilet seats, you know, no windows to see the outside, nothing to do except for watch TV, you know, that made me appreciate life so much and I didn't realize how much I have I was missing out on until I went to jail and I realized what I didn't have. Um, and so it took me a long time in jail, even still though, to come to terms with the fact that I was the cause of where I was at. Mm. It took me a long time to realize that not, it's not anybody else's fault. You know, the reason why I'm here is because of me. Um, you know, and it allowed me to build a relationship back with my dad and, uh, my sister, and so, you know, of course, it's all through glass, and they'd come visit me in jail, and I'm in my striped jumpsuit. And, yeah. you know, it's just, it's such a humbling experience. Um, not only that, but it sobered me up. It really gave me time to get away from drugs yeah. and alcohol and the people. Yeah. So that's what I needed. Yeah. Even though it's forced, it's a gift, right? Because it, it does that for you. And again, no, another story I've heard many, many times Um people who are, are making the most many times of, of their recovery and their opportunities. Um, those stories of, you know, law enforcement involvement, jail time, those things that set them apart for a while are beginnings. If we allow them to be, God uses them as beginnings. So were there um, opportunities for you to do some recovery coursework, some uh, any of that type when you were in jail or, or what did that look like for you? Yeah, so jail was interesting. Um, you know, I I guess I didn't really realize how intense my addiction was. I didn't want to acknowledge that. I 
I just, you know, I'm in jail, I'm in the secluded environment where my mindset is, well, I'm fine. You know, I don't need help. I don't have a problem. You know, so it was really easy for me to not go to the AA or the NA groups because I didn't need to. Like, I felt fine. I didn't feel like I needed to go use. I didn't feel like I was addicted. You know, that wasn't really a concern for me. Um, and it took a lot of people to show me that, 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 you know, the truth. Um, and I also, you know, through my lawyer and, you know, going to court multiple times, you know, I realized that this wasn't just a a simple, you're going to get out of jail and go back to life. You know, I realized that I needed to make a lifestyle change. And in order to do that, I'd have to go to treatment. Mm. You know, I can't say that that's something that I wanted to do, but I knew that I I needed to do that in order to show that I could live a somewhat normal life. You know, I I didn't have to go back to the way I was living. And so in jail, I was given the opportunity, um, well, I had a list of treatment centers. And so I wrote to every single one of them. Yeah. Um, The only one that I got back was from the VOA. Really? My only response, yep. And so I was told that the waiting list was eight months, and I signed up, and I waited eight months. And I I just waited f- for court. I waited for, you know, the notification that I was good to come into treatment. And so I went to court, and I was really lucky with the judge that I got. She She was amazing, Judge Cricken. Um, she was a new judge at the time, had literally just taken over, mm. and um, I wrote her basically a summary of my life up until that point, um, you know, really trying to describe to her who I was and what I wanted in my future. And at sentencing, she allowed me to go to treatment, and I was so grateful for that. And I brought it with me, actually. She said, uh, this is from the newspaper. Yeah. You strike me as someone who will one day be speaking to young men and women about addiction and why not to do drugs. So that's what the judge said to me at my sentencing. You know, and little did I know that that's exactly what I would be doing, you know, here today. So Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, again, those little places of light in her life, right, that, that begin to open up. So you spent the year in jail, you came out, and you went into VOA. Uh, what did that look like? Yeah, VOA was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. Mm. It was scary because I was sober. I was, I felt really vulnerable. I had went from one environment, you know, living in jail for that long to now a, another extreme environment surrounded by, you know, 30, 40 women. Yeah. And I just, I, I was so scared you know, I walked in those doors and my dad was with me and it was just the most terrifying moment of my life, yet the best day of my life because, you know, this is where I I was going to find myself. And that's exactly what I did. You know, I didn't learn about my addiction. I didn't learn about my history or why I did the things I did. I learned about who I was, you know, the person who I lost to meth so long ago. That's what I discovered at the VOA. Yeah. How did you come to terms with that? What What was it that helped you get there? Uh, I think 
it was a lot of different ways of thinking, different ways of, you know, rehashing my, my life growing up. Um, but then also, you know, a really strong sense of spirituality and finding that, you know, there's something bigger in this world, bigger than me that has led to me being here. And so that was, was really a pivotal moment for me in treatment was that realization. Yeah. Yeah. That higher power piece is just crucial. Yep. Crucial as we walk through things. So you were here for 90 days, I'm guessing, roughly? Yep. So I did 90 days in treatment. And back then they did the transitions program, they called it. And so that allowed me to do the 90-day program and treatment. And then I was given an extra 30 days to continue living there, but I would be allowed to work and come back to, you know, I'd sleep there and I'd eat there, but I was able to leave for work. And so I got a job at Perkins and I worked every day and, you know, saved up enough to buy my first apartment. Wow. Yeah. And so it really, it took a lot for me to decide whether I wanted to go back home to Laramie or if I wanted to relocate here. And, you know, I just, I knew I needed a fresh start and I knew that in treatment, you know, we're able to go to meetings, we're able to experience what the AA and NA community is here. And so I really fell in love with that when I was in treatment. So I decided to move to Sheridan, got my first apartment and here I am today. Well, so there's some things that took place. We may not have time right now to go through all those things, but some things that took place obviously between you transitioning, getting, you know, finding work, doing your thing. And then again, like so many others, you made your way back here. How did that happen? Yeah. So I, I worked as a waitress for, oh gosh, see, I graduated in 2017 and I, I waitressed for about a year, I'd say. And then I realized that, you know, I just wanted more than that. I just felt this drive to you know, get more than just what waitressing was for me, purpose. And so that's when I applied to work at Volunteers of America. And I started out as a recovery health tech. Yeah. Yeah. Working with the same type of people that you came in as. Yeah. Pretty amazing, right? It was so amazing. It was so cool to be able to, you know, walk alongside these these people who literally went through the same thing that I did, you know, of course, different details and whatnot, but I mean, I know what they're going through. I've been there and it was just such an empowering time for me to be able to give back and, and to find that purpose in doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a very intentional way to walk out your 12th step, right? It's that very intentional way to get plugged in. And I think those of us who have gone through, you know, our, our addiction and come out the other side, grateful and thankful, there's no other option, but to give that back and to want other people to experience that because we know, what would you say? I know it's a big question, but how, how do you think your identity has changed? What, what would you say about that from that young girl who felt less valued and struggled with things to now? How's your identity changed? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I really think that 
the biggest thing is I've found purpose in life. Um, I've found what is most important in life. And through that, you know, I've, I've become really confident with who I am as a person and I can do that sober now, you know, and that's so powerful that Mm. I don't need any other substance in the world to make me feel the way I feel now, you know, and I found that through helping other people. And I found that through discovering the real me, you know, even as a kid, even if I didn't, you know, go through addiction, I, I really do think that, you know, this afforded me the opportunity to dive deep into who I was, you know, and so I'm grateful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't change my path at all because, you know, without any of it, I definitely wouldn't be where I'm at today, mindset and physical. Yeah. How was your idea of God from being uh, that, that young person to now? What has changed? Do you think that the, the biggest thing that's changed? Definitely the biggest thing is, you know, growing up, I never, I never believed in God. Um, I never, it was never a thing that came up in the house. You know, growing up, I never believed in God. I considered myself agnostic, Mm. Um, you know, and even going into treatment, that's how I felt. You know, there's a fear going into a faith-based treatment center for me because, Yeah. yeah. And so really, I think the biggest thing is, discovering what God is to me, who God is to me, Mm. Um, and really, you know, I feel like someone's got my back. I feel like there's someone, something, some being that, that has my back that no matter what, you know, it's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's such an encouraging, um, sense of that, that takes us away from isolation and allows us to be a part of other things and changes so much. What, what, what is maybe one or two of the, the biggest things that you still do now uh, that are part of your either daily or weekly recovery, um, ongoing health? What do you do that really helps you? Yeah. So I found that, um, to keep my sobriety and to keep happy in my sobriety, I, I have to focus on self-care and I have to experience, um, you know, for me, it's, it's working out, it's fitness, it's weightlifting, it's trail running, you know, those things that give me a peace of mind, those things that um, allow me to just kind of decompress. It's my form of meditation, I'd say. Yeah, that's great. And we live in a place that's Pretty great for that um, here in Sheridan, right next to the mountains. So there's lots of opportunities to get out and uh, really be grateful for what we have, for sure. So I asked this question to everyone as we wrap up. What would you want to say to somebody who's listening right now um, that's that's struggling with addiction, that's struggling in their recovery even? Um, how would you want to encourage them? Yeah, you know, and I think... I did a lot of that when I when I worked on campus and I think the, the most important thing that I can say and that I have said to everybody is you always have a choice. Mm. You know, you always have a choice. And you know, until you can decide for yourself that 
you want a better life, that you want to get out of the way you've been living, you know, nothing's going to change. You have to make that decision. Yeah, that's powerful. It, it clears up some things and uh, helps us know that we are not uh, so defeated right. that there's not an option. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thanks for that. Jesse, I appreciate you. Appreciate you spending your time. I, I know that people will be uh, moved by your story. And uh, for those of you listening, I hope this was a blessing for you. Um, if you have questions or, again, if you are in need of recovery yourself, please reach out to us through uh, the website. Um, give us a call. We want to help you. We're here for you. God bless you. Recovery Podcast is brought to you by Volunteers of America. If you heard something that strikes a chord, shoot us an email at recoverypodcast at voanr.org. Today's music is courtesy of Free Music Archive. This week you heard tunes by Ketza, who also composed our theme music. Links to the artists can be found at our website. Thanks for listening, rating, and most importantly, for sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you.